This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight we are talking about employment law, anxiety, gynecological issues. Also going to be talking about intimacy. And now it's time for the podcast. An employment lawyer in her day job, she is Rose Keith, and she joins me on the line. Good evening, Rose. Hi, Maureen. Thanks for coming back again to help uh, people navigate all of the legal issues associated with working or not working. Yeah, my pleasure. It's great to have you. So we, of course, have had a couple of emails, but if you have a question for me about, or not for me, because I can't answer it for you, but Rose Keith, (laughs) who is a lawyer, (laughs) actually can. (laughs) Don't believe anything I say. Um, But, or you can email me, nerdstalk at hotmail.com. And so I did get a couple of emails. I just want to read it, um, read one of them to you. So dear Maureen, as a business owner who employs a number of employees, I'm not so sure that very many businesses, especially those that have little or no revenue will be able to pay the employee full wage, even if they are getting 75% back from the government program. There is no way that we will pay for someone a full wage if they are not working. If their wage is $20 an hour or less, they get 75%. But over that, the amount the employer ends up paying, if they pay the full wage, works out to be more like 50%. In my case, my payroll being $80,000 a month. Additionally, just to add to that, we discovered that the employer can deduct their portion of the CPP and EI contributions. If the employee doesn't work for a week but still gets paid, this cannot be combined with the 75% rebate that is supposed to be forthcoming. There's a lot of questions there. I hope you have a, a simple answer. No. <laughs> and the simple okay, answer is? <laughs> yeah, let's unpack it a little bit. So, um, you know, as long as the employer has experienced a 30% drop in revenue or 15% in March, they're entitled to the 75% wage subsidy up to a maximum of 847 per week. Um, the government has asked employers if they're able to, they should make their best efforts to top up the employees' salaries to bring them up to pre-crisis levels if they're able to. Um, if they're not able to, they're not able to. And the 75% or the 847 per week is significantly more than what they would be entitled to under EI or something else. So you're doing your employer a real favor by not laying them off. Um, the refund for payroll contributions. So the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy has been expanded and there's been an introduction of a new um, 100% refund for employer-paid contributions to EI and CPP. So if you have employees who are being paid but not working at all during the week, you can you can claim that refund. And that's over and above the 75%. And so who gets to claim that refund? That's the employer that gets the to claim employer, yes. that refund. And so that should yeah. help in keeping people employed. Well, it, it helps the employer because um, so w- when they're when they're keeping them employed and um, collecting this wage subsidy, they still have to collect and remit payments on behalf of the employee. But if they're an employee that's staying at home, then the employer actually gets to claim a refund of their employer contributions that they would have been making on behalf of the employee. Okay, so if they do a fair bit of math, uh, they might actually 
come out on top and be able to salvage their business? Is this the idea that the government... should be close to a, I, I haven't done the math, so I don't know. But if you're an employer who cannot top up beyond the 75%, um, one thing employers are always going to be aware of are the contributions that they have to make, mm-hmm. EI and CPP. But under this program, they don't have to make those contributions. They can claim them as a refund. I see. Okay. Yeah. So that makes sense. And I actually, uh, not to um, put the math on you, but I think everybody has to do their own math in all of this because it depends on how much they pay, how much income they have and how much they pay the employees and how many employees they have. As I've said all along in this pandemic, we, you know, we need healthcare workers and grocers and, um, you know, lots of bus drivers and other uh, people, but we also need statisticians and mathematicians and lawyers and lawyers to figure it all out especially lawyers for us especially (laughs) lawyers yes absolutely Uh, and radio hosts we really need radio yes definitely radio hosts (laughs) for sure (laughs) talking radio hosts anyway (laughs) okay so there were some eligibility changes to the CERB this week that actually helped to expand the program um, can you talk to us about that? Yeah, well, we actually talked or touched on this last week, and there's there's those kind of funny situations where people are learn, earning a little bit of money, and um, the way the CERB was originally written, they would be disentitled to the CERB if they're earning some money. That program has now been changed, and, and people can earn up to $1,000 in a month and still get the CERB. So those people who are working really, you know, sporadically or only a few hours a week, they'll be able to continue doing that and still collect the CERB. And the CERB, just for the listeners who have not heard of it, uh, who have not needed to apply. Canada Emergency Response Benefit. So that's the benefit that people who um, have been laid off or who um, are self-employed or independent contractors, those type of people, anyone who... um, is not going to remain in an employed situation, able to access. And that's taxable income for people, is that correct? Yes. So it's best to put aside 20% to um, make sure you can pay that portion next year when tax time? The benefit that they receive will be a net benefit, not a gross benefit. Oh, is that right? The the actual check? Yeah, is a net benefit. Oh, I thought they. Yeah. I thought I'd heard people who said they got their two thousand dollars checks. It's two thousand dollars every week. Uh, how no? How often? A month? Every two month. thousand. Four weeks. Right. Okay. Yeah. So the the taxes are taken off. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I didn't realize that. They say um, we're going to go to break after this one. I'll leave you the, with this question to give you a little time to think about it. And then I have another email that has come in. Um, but they say that sex workers, um, it's dangerous for them to apply for CERB. So I, I'd like to go to break. And 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 I imagine not just sex workers, but um, other people in that type of work environment, work way, if you will. Um, And so it would be difficult for some people. And I've heard that from other people who maybe haven't filed taxes or were working under the table or made a lot of their income through tips or whatever. Some people are actually afraid to apply for the CERB. So I want to talk to my guest, Rose Keith, lawyer from Harper Gray. Um, There are a number of people who saw their um, income dry up overnight. Um, Some of those are migrant workers. Others are 
uh, sex workers. And many sex workers or migrant workers in Canada do not qualify for the federal government's Canadian emergency response benefit, or they are afraid to apply. Um, many b- people believe sex work is decriminalized in Canada and only criminal for those who purchase it, but this is a, a misunderstanding of the law. There are provisions in the criminal code that make workers immune from prosecution, but not immune from the actual arrest. So this means that a lot of people are not able to put food on their table for their children or pay their rent um, or get health care or feed themselves. Um, and so what do you suggest for people who are afraid to apply Okay, so this really is speaking to undocumented income. And with undocumented income, it puts people in a difficult position. So there will be people with undocumented income who still will uh, qualify for the CERB if they've had $5,000 in the year of documented income. Um, Those people may have concerns about getting into the system or... um, um, just having more government eyes on it. Mm-hmm. My understanding of the CERB is that as long as you can prove your qualifications, there's not going to be um, there's not going to be somebody from Canada Revenue Agency knocking on your door. It's not going to open up this big inquiry into whether that really is all that you've got. Like it's, um, I, I think the question is really, do you have five thousand dollars of documented income or not? And that's pretty easy to tell from tax returns. Um, There's a whole other category of people who maybe were collecting um, uh, benefits from the government and working on the side and having undocumented income. Mm -hmm. And for them to declare that income, it's obviously going to raise a lot of potential problems for them, including the sources of the income, and there would be a lot of concerns around that. Um, it, it's it's a problematic area, and what we've seen so far is the government responding to these areas where there's a little bit of a void, and there may be a recognition that there's a void in this area of undocumented income as well. Okay, excellent. That's excellent information. If you have any questions for Rose Keith, you can email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com. I will forward them on to her. You can also call us, 1-877-399-9898, or text us. That's 1-877-399-9898. I have another email from a group of psychiatrists. Dear Maureen, for your lawyer guests, we are three psychiatrists who each run our own practice e.g. have their own business, but we share office space. We collectively employ four medical office assistants because we share their services and therefore pay them out of a shared bank account. We would like to keep all four of them employed, but may not be able to do so unless we qualify for the 75% salary for the employees from the government. Do you know if we would qualify? Thank you. Okay, the question remains whether they uh, fit within the criteria. So it's 15% in March, 30% April and May. So uh, of a reduction in the revenue. And it's difficult to know from that question whether they've got a umbrella corporation or how they've set it up. But um, my sense is that the wage subsidy is set up to accommodate these different sort of arrangements that 
business arrangements that people find themselves in. And mm-hmm. the question is really just, is there a drop in that revenue? For psychiatrists, I assume there probably is. Um, yes. Although every practice is probably different. So if they've they got did say, that... They did say there was a drop in the revenue. Because that was a voice right. message and I typed it, yeah. Okay. So if there is that drop in the revenue, they should qualify for it. Okay. And that's a 15% for March and 30% for April? Correct. Okay. Fantastic. All right. And the reason it's 15% in March is because it was really only half the month that we were struggling with the pandemic. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Right. All right. I have another email. I just saw it. Okay. Here we go. Question about CERB. What if someone who is not eligible for CERB because they are still working and making more than $1,000 a month decides to use the CERB as a loan? They apply for it one time knowing that next year at tax time they will have to pay the money back. Would it be a problem doing this as long as they pay it back? Thank you, Darren, for the question. Um, so... I take it from that, that the person is employed and they're earning income. What if someone who's not eligible for CERB because they are still working and making more than $1,000 a month? I don't know how much more than $1,000 a month they're making. Yeah. So I have not seen the application forms for the CERB, Mm -hmm. but I presume that a part of the CERB is an attestation about whether you qualify or not. And obviously, Always, when you falsify a document like that, there's potential implications for it beyond just repaying. Now, but what if people believe they qualify and then they realize, okay, they didn't qualify? Uh, The only thing I've seen on this is related to the wage subsidy. And when it relates to the wage subsidy, the government has indicated there may be penalties. Okay. They've been silent on what those might be. Right. Um, there will definitely be a requirement to repay. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. I've received lots of questions regarding whether or not I thought there would be more babies born during this pandemic. This is a complex issue given contraception, IUD insertion, and essential services for pregnant people. Joining me on the line to discuss this very important issue is obstetrics and gynecology resident at the University of British Columbia, Dr. Nicole Thompson. Good evening, Dr. Thompson. Hi, Maureen. How are, How are you? you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm really good. Thank you. Good. Whenever anyone asks me that question or I ask it, it always just has a, a, you know, a much more important uh, tone to yeah. it. You know, yeah. Pre-pandemic, we used to be like, how are you? I'm good. I'm not, you know, I would basically say when I wasn't good. But anyway, that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> I, tell, I, you know, I wear it on my sleeve. I tell it like it is. <laughs> I, get yes. in, I get in trouble. Uh, anyway, uh, lots of questions about... Babies. Are, so many people are wondering, are we going to have a baby boom coming up? Um, but this is actually a very complex issue, and it relates to unintended pregnancy for people as well. Um, so let's talk a, a little bit about that and what that looks like out on the landscape. Yeah. So, I mean, um, just to sort of preface what I say, the information that I have is, is from a local context and as well from review of Uh, national resources like the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada. Um, But there is a joint statement that um, from most of our national groups that abortion care is an essential service and is absolutely most definitely still available, um, you know, in areas that were providing abortion care before 
so in Vancouver, the clinics that are open um, and operational, and really there's been very little change to their service, are Care, Bagshaw, uh, Every Woman's, and Willow. Um, some of the people who do access the um, abortion services may find a bit of a change in terms of reducing in-person visits. Um, they are doing a little bit more um, medical abortion prescription via phone or via telehealth. Um, but the follow-up plans are the same. And what they're seeing right now is the data from safety from those procedures is also like equivalent to in-person visits. Which is excellent. Um, mm-hmm. are, are women afraid to access services, um, whether it be yeah. for abortion or given the pandemic um, or other reproductive issues? Yes, I think that's a good question. Um, I think what we've been seeing so far is that people have not been presenting for emergency care um, at the same rates as they would have before, and they are presenting with higher acuity, Um, specifically with regards to pregnancy. I know that my um, incredible midwifery colleagues who do do home deliveries have had an increase in uh, requests for home deliveries, and I know in Vancouver they've been unable to accommodate all of them. Um, So I I do know that that's changing um, the landscape a little bit. Wow. Uh, so, so they're afraid to come in and, and obviously they're afraid that there's COVID in the hospitals, but you know, they may not realize that there are procedures put in place and it, and it can actually be one of the safest places. Um, yeah. And at this you know, the SOGC, you know, does not recommend home delivery for COVID positive patients or other patients that would otherwise not be a candidate for a home delivery. Um, And we are also, you know, doing our very best to, you know, create a beautiful birth experience for people even during the COVID time. Um, There are some differences that people will experience when they present to labor and delivery. Um, For instance, we are um, allowing one support person um, plus a registered doula. We're not allowing any other visitors onto the unit. Um, We are screening for infectious symptoms with every person upon presentation. Uh, patients may see staff wearing a little bit more PPE than we previously wore. Um, we're not allowing Entinox gas um, mm-hmm. because it aerosolizes the, or, you know, makes the, you know, whatever viruses and things like that go into the air more than just the droplet precaution that um, we know right now for COVID-19. Are, are women being uh, asked to wear prote- personal protective equipment or pregnant people being asked and the people who are in the room with them? Yeah, so it it depends on their screening for symptoms. The staff will absolutely be wearing PPE, and the support person might be wearing a mask as well, but the laboring person will not be unless they have to leave the room um, and go to the operating theater for a cesarean section, in which case they do mask them up. Okay, and is that part of the recommendations from the uh, SOGC and ACOG, or the American version Um, of that professional group? Yeah, so any as a pregnant person. Who, yeah, so any of our patients who have like any infectious um, condition that we're worried about transmission will always wear a mask when transporting out of their own room. Um, so those are patients with MRSA, VRE, patients with influenza, et cetera. We've always had the mask before, so that's not really a change in practice. Right. I was just curious about uh, during labor because of the slipstream, which is we're, we're finding out that uh, runners and cyclists have a, um, a longer um, slipstream than, you know, that it's been recommended the social or physical distancing to be six feet apart because that's about uh, how far apart you need to be for the, um, the droplets, uh, the, the infected droplets to, you know, not go near you. But for cyclists, you need to stay away 20 feet, I think. And for runners, 
is 12 feet. And I'm just wondering for pregnant women who are crying and screaming and swearing. I don't know anyone who did that myself, (laughs) but um, who typically don't swear, uh, you know, (laughs) let's mention spitting (laughs) while we're at it. And that's not intentional. That's just because they might have a big mouth, big lips and big teeth and they're a spitter. (laughs) Oh, I love it. No, we're definitely not asking our laboring patients to in the room while they're pushing. I think that would just be... That would be very, very challenging. Very yes, difficult. Yes. So no. So I think the birth, the birth experience is, it, it is a little bit different. Um, but I mean, like, we are still providing lots of love and TLC from the labor and delivery staff. Um, we've had questions too about with COVID positive patients, because I know in China, they were delivering several of the patients via cesarean section. So I think there's a concern with patients that we would recommend a C-section for patients with COVID. Um and that's actually not been the case. So cesarean sections have only been done for obstetrical reasons. Um, and there was a recent study that just came out of New York um, looking at 43 pregnant people. And nobody required a cesarean section with uh, COVID um, because of COVID symptoms. Oh, that's um, great. That's, that's great to yeah. know. It's a small study. Let's keep that in mind. For It is, it is it, yes. Yes, but we yes. need to keep, continue to build the numbers. Unfortunately, you know, we're going to be able to because we're looking at this um, over the long term. I'm very happy to hear, Dr. Thompson, that uh, pregnant people can have a partner or a support person and a doula. Uh, because a yeah. lot of pregnant people have had concerns have you know they've been talking to me about that they're going to they've heard that they have to be in there alone so it is the it, the doula does have to be a registered doula with um, a relationship with the hospital that they're working at so that might be a bit of a barrier to that um, but they the laboring person is most definitely allowed to have a partner in there with them Right, but that's important to um, for people to know beforehand, mm-hmm. before they, um, you know, as they get ready to uh, deliver. Um, yeah. And what about postpartum? Uh, yeah, so postpartum care. So we actually uh, looked at the studies, and so far they've looked at um, breast milk, vaginal swabs, blood, and placenta, and there hasn't been any evidence of vertical transmission. So essentially pregnant people with, um, with COVID are not passing it on to their baby prior to delivery. Um, and that's so what you mean I, by vertical transmission. Yeah, yeah. And so COVID positive um, parents, though, are being asked um, to mask and do very good hand hygiene prior to breastfeeding, but they are absolutely still supported in their breastfeeding. Um, and if they are going to be sleeping in the same room, um, to be sleeping six feet apart with a curtain in between just to prevent any potential droplets, uh, transmission to the baby. Um, and, you know, I just, I say that too, with a bit of a caveat that like, I recognize that physical distancing is a privilege, um, and that not all people who have babies, um, have that, you know, privilege of six feet of space and that, um, you know, us as the obstetrical team, the midwifery team, et cetera, will, and family medicine teams will work with every person on an individualized basis to reduce the risk and, you know, enhance the experience and the family experience of that patient and child. 
That's excellent. It's excellent information. I really appreciate the fact that, um, you know, you mentioned that not everybody would have that physical, the, the luxury, really, I've, I've called it a luxury of um, physical space. This yeah. has hit so many people in so many different ways. And, and we take certain things for granted. You know, it may not, we, those of us who are able to work from home, even if it's reduced, mm-hmm. or those of us who have, are able to, you know, have our medications picked up or, you know, have, have support in place or aren't living with 10 people under one roof of different generations, um, you know, or people who have lost all of their income. I, I really think that the, uh, the way or the reach this pandemic has had, how it's infiltrated society and how, um, you know, especially people who are, are of lower income or who are troubled or who, who are in domestic violence situations, I mean, you know, it's it's so much more challenging and we really need to to reach out and help and i really appreciate that you've you've come on the show and and have provided outstanding information for anybody who's worried about their pregnancy well and you know you know i'm just one person one you know very junior resident on the radio here but you know all of my colleagues that i work with are very supportive of their patients and are keeping abreast of all the covid-19 information and studies and things like that so you know, reach out wherever possible, ask questions. There are lots of us out there who are consuming the information as fast as it comes out just so we can be prepared to support our patients. So thank you so much. And you're not just, you're not just, you are, you are. Never use that word. That's a four letter word in my. Oh, it's just my feminism roots. I just hate myself for saying that too. I couldn't say that. You're right. Dr. Thompson, you are fabulous. Thank you so much. Great information. You too. All right. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath. She is a registered dietitian, nutrition expert, and author specializing in delicious, nutritious meals dropped off in mason jars. Allie Chernoff joins me on the line. Good evening, Allie. Good evening. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Better now. I but I did have a bit of a rough go. I'm not heard I'm not sure if you heard me, but yesterday, full disclosure here, I was driving home and I heard on the radio, of course CKNW, a chorus radio station, that we're British Columbians are being so good by only grocery shopping once a week and our grocery shopping day is Monday. And uh, and so I thought, you know what, I can find something to eat at home. I'm not gonna stop off just to get something. And so I went home and I looked through and lo and behold, there it was, a hungry man frozen dinner, <laughs> which I ate. And you know what? Wasn't bad. I have to be honest. I'm not the pickiest eater there ever was. Uh, okay. It didn't agree with me all that much, but any, nonetheless, that's not what we should be eating during a pandemic. It's never been so important to eat nutritiously uh, during a pandemic. And so a lot of us are eating out and take, getting takeout, which is great to support um, people who are um, working in those to keep those restaurants open. So what do you suggest for people who, um, you know, get takeout sent to their home? Let's start with that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of my clients are asking me as well, like, I want to get takeout, but is it safe? So it is absolutely safe. So little, few little tips. So number one, you know, bring it in, wash your hands, get out your plates, Take the takeout, dump it out on the plates, then go and recycle the, probably made out of cardboard or paper, go out, recycle it, come back in, wash your hands, enjoy your takeout. 
Very simple. Okay. So it's really a matter of removing it and washing your hands. If you've touched any part that it's been transported in, the bag, the box. Exactly. I mean, there's some studies out showing that cardboard, which is basically paper, uh, virus can stay on there for 24 hours. Right. Okay. And have them drop it off um, outside of your house or maybe on the street or something. Exactly. All right. They can come up to your front door, drop it off. You don't need to to see them because you've already paid online. Hopefully the tip is included online as well. Very safe. Bring it in. Wash your hands. Get your plates out. Dump it on. Take it out. Recycle it. Come back in. Take off your shoes, obviously, and then wash your hands again. And enjoy your meal. Excellent. Now, this is an ongoing issue in my house because nobody realized that I was actually washing the produce in soap and hot water and soap. (laughs) Um, So what uh, does one do for produce? What is the uh, recommendation for bringing produce and and other groceries, but in particular produce, into your home? Sure. I mean, with buying any produce now, except obviously bananas, um, what the tips are, and it is and it is a little risk, but to me as a dietitian, little risk doesn't mean no risk. And as we know, we're learning things every day. But what I would suggest is even, say, an orange, because the problem is, yeah, that's great, you bring your groceries in and you wash your hands, but then when you go and get the orange, because some people don't put it in the fridge, they just leave it on the counter, then you might be peeling an orange with virus on there, and then you're eating it with your hands. So it's best to dump the oranges in, a, in the sink, wash them with warm water and a little bit of soap. Wash them really well as if you're washing your hands, and then put them in the fridge. Okay, so that's pretty simple as well. So it's okay to use that, wash them off with soap and warm water. It is. Yes. I mean, you got to outweigh the the benefits, you know, and, and I try and use environmentally friendly soap. Mm-hmm. So even if, God forbid, you didn't rinse it well enough with the soap off, even if you ingest a little bit of soap, it's not going to hurt you. So you definitely want more of that environmentally soap. That's right. And so when you, when you mentioned bananas, when you mentioned bananas, it's just less risk because you're just cracking a banana basically and peeling it down as opposed to peeling or pulling it down versus peeling an orange. Yeah. Yes. You really usually your fingers are getting into your mouth and right you know, right yes exactly you don't want to go there yeah i wash my bananas though <laughs> oh, okay well i know, do it all oh yeah i feel better than <laughs> go with that as well okay my ocd has revealed itself quite well how about that box i, I will say if i have ordered toilet paper because it's not easy to find i leave it outside for three days but what about a box of pasta or crackers um what what should people do then yeah for sure so again because it is usually made out of paper So what I do is I bring in my groceries, wash my hands, and then I get out my food storage containers. I go back, get the box of pasta, open it up, dump it into the food storage container, and then I go and recycle that box of pasta. Come back in, wash my hands. Oh, that's a great idea. I've been washing the boxes of pasta and hiding them in the cupboard for several days. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, washing I mean, boxes. the Lysol wipes don't really work that well, and uh, boy, it's very time-consuming. It sure I mean, if is. It makes people feel better, Yeah, sure, but at the end of the day, it's better just to dump it in your own containers and get rid of that 
Right. I, I'm big recycling, so Absolutely. recycle it. Now, now, I just want to, we don't have that much time left, and I just want to focus. You do nutrition consulting. Uh, we're seeing that people who have cardiovascular disease, hypertension, obesity, they have, uh, they get sicker sooner. They may become more severely ill. Um, so you do nutrition consulting. It's never been a better time to get healthy and eat nutritiously. And you also have a service where you provide delicious and nutritious meals in mason jars and they can be dropped off and wiped down, obviously. Um, so tell me a little bit about that. Sure. I mean, not all of us are out of a job. I mean, there's many people that are working from home and are still working from home because they've always worked from home. So now they're busier than ever. Um, so at the end of the day, they're like, oh, my God, I haven't really eaten properly all day. So I provide a service now where I not only go to the grocery store, buy your groceries, I come home, I take it a step further, I develop a bunch of meals based on our assessment, and then every week I drop off, uh, you know, whatever you prefer, breakfast, lunch, and dinner even. But right now, he's clinical professor at the University of British Columbia, treating patients on the front lines of this COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Gurdeep Parhar is on the line and takes your questions. Good evening, Dr. Parhar. Good evening, Maureen. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Good, thank you. <laughs> That's wonderful. Okay, from the beginning, I, as you know, I have been a proponent of testing, uh, testing and tracing and... S- isolating people. Well, now all of a sudden it's a thing. You know, I, I uh, often think up these things in my head and then somebody else <laughs> comes you're up with of, them. You were ahead of your time. You were definitely ahead I time. was ahead of my time. TTSI is now the new black. It's now in vogue. So with uh, our country and our, uh, different cities across the country ever so slightly loosening restrictions and also the U.S. talking about opening up a number of um, places and also protests happening across that country. What is TTS? Not to mention the fact that some research out of Stanford shows that this virus, COVID-19, is far more prevalent than we realized. Um, Tell me and the listeners, please, about TTSI. Fantastic. So uh, there's been a lot of new lingo and a lot of new words, phrases that we've been um, caught up in with the COVID-19 flattening the curve, PPE. Um, I imagine a lot of the listeners didn't know what PPE was before all of this. So the new acronym that's going to become the buzzword, uh, the buzz phrase we're hoping now is TTSI. And in a way, what it's re- essentially restating is what, Maureen, you've been saying. Like I said, you were well, well, well ahead of our time. Um, but for, especially for a blonde. <laughs> and and uh, so that might have something to to do with the hair color and dyes and being not on the shelves right now. I mean, they're also being stockpiled at your house. That might be a different discussion. Um, so TTSI is basically saying it's, it's, it's summarizing our exit strategy from the isolation, the physical distancing. When we start um, coming out of our caves and um, you know, mingling again and not have the physical distancing, um, what is it that we're going to need going forward? So TTSI stands for tracing. Uh, sorry, first testing, testing, tracing, and then supported isolation. So the testing we've talked about a lot, not just the immediate um, test that tells us whether or not we're infected, but then the subsequent antibody tests that we're going to need and having those available for the general population. Tracing means as soon as you identify a positive case, um, how quickly can you identify not just that case, but also the, all the contacts of that case? Because as we worried about with COVID-19, a lot of people are infectious or pass the infection on um, before they get any symptoms. 
and then supported isolation. And I really like the as supported isolation bit, Maureen. Um, I think earlier in the program we were talking about how safe and unsafe it is to isolate, and then not everyone in our communities can safely isolate. So this is really talking about isolating, but in a supportive manner, right? So how do, how do we do that? And really that's going to be our secret to, to the future, the new normal as we're calling it, or the exit strategy. Absolutely. PSI testing, tracing, and supportive isolation. Excellent. And um, we're going to need a lot of manpower for that. But I have Catherine on the line. Hello, Catherine. Hi, you guys. Hey, I have a question about, you know how hepatitis, it's a virus and it can hurt your liver. I'm, I'm wondering if this virus can do the same. Dr. Parhar? Um, excellent question. So just to remind our listeners, there's a, many different types of hepatitis, but the more common ones we talk about are hepatitis A, B, and C. Um, a and B both have vaccines, so if you haven't been vaccinated, you should think about being vaccinated for A and B. But A, B, and C can all lead to liver inflammation um, after an infection. So what we are finding with COVID-19 is it's, it's primarily an infection in the respiratory system or in the lungs. But we're also finding that when there's a, the hyperimmune response, or what they're calling the cytokine um, storm, um, that when your body's sort of overreacting, the inflammation then happens not just in the lungs, but also in the liver, um, the heart, um, parts of the brain, perhaps the kidneys. Um, so it can um, cause inflammation in the liver, but that's not the first organ that's targeted. Thank you. And what I would say is that if you're using quarantinis as a vaccine, then it could impact your liver. So (laughs) there has been a surge in alcohol consumption. And uh, I believe, Dr. Parhar, you and I are going to talk about that. Thank you, Catherine, for your great question. uh, in fact, alcohol is a socially acceptable um, uh, activity, if you will. Many, many people drink. Uh, many, many people uh, have issues and they don't even realize it. It can be a contributing factor to domestic violence, to intimacy relationships, to um, to work. People may lose their jobs as a result, uh, to physical health, to sleep, to mental health, emotional health. I often see people on Facebook, they're saying that they have anxiety or depression, and then in one photo, and then in the next post, they ha- you know, they're there, it's their fourth beer. Um, and so th- in a pandemic, we are more anxious, more tense, uh, we have more time, we're more bored, we have more of a tendency to drink alcohol or smoke weed. So what is the what are the health impacts uh, for people who who have upped their game, shall we say, during the pandemic. So as, as a social experiment of physical distancing and isolation is sort of unfolding since in January, February morning, we're finding a lot of not just medical, physical issues, but social issues that are arising. And you're going to later in the program, thankfully, also cover domestic violence. But one of the things that um, a study found and that was reported just a couple of days ago is that 25% of Canadians between the ages of 35 and 54 are reporting an increase um, in their alcohol intake during isolation. And those between 18 and 34 years old, of them said they were also increasing their alcohol intake um, because of physical distancing. And, you know, we can have all sorts of um, discussions, um, Maureen, uh, hopefully not over a glass of wine, but but (laughs) discussions on what what is causing this. You know, is it because people are bored? Are they self-medicating their anxiety or sleep issues? Um, You know, why are people drinking more? But it it is is sort of generally thought and definitely anecdotally that people are consuming more alcohol. But, Maureen, they're also consuming more um, mar- marijuana or cannabis as well. Um, and although I don't have the data in front of me, 
I would suggest perhaps also other um, substance use has gone up as well. Um, and something to be very, very careful about. Um, and just to remind our listeners, um, and, I, and I got this from HealthLink BC, so if you're ever looking for um, sort of guidelines, HealthLink BC has a great website on there. And so to remind everyone, low-risk drinking levels, and unfortunately it's kind of binary, it's m- males and females, but if you're on the, on the transgender spectrum, you can sort of identify which group you would fall into there. But if you're a male, um, no more than three standard drinks a day on most days and no more than 15 drinks in a week. And if you're a woman, no more than two standard drinks in a day on most days and no more than 10 drinks a week. Now, what I always warn patients when I say that is um, if you haven't drank anything for five days, it doesn't mean you catch up on the sixth day and, and you have all your drinks on the one day. Um, and, and to remind everyone, it's not just the number of drinks that's an issue, but it's whether or not that alcohol consumption is um, negatively impacting your personal life, your family life, your um, social life. So it could be just one or two drinks, but if that's causing you to um, be dysfunctional in your social and family interactions or work interactions, then, then you have a problem. Exactly. And there's another um, issue that, that faces a lot of people. There's a lot of people that don't drink daily, but they're what we call the binge drinkers. And so once they start, they can't stop. And so they might say, uh, they might deny, and denial is a drug as well, uh, but they might be like, well, I don't drink all week, and then I drink on Friday and Saturday nights, and you know, I can't get up for work on Monday morning. Um, and so the, the binge drinking is another issue. And so uh, why is that dangerous for people? Absolutely. Um, well, a few things. Um, I mean, as you said, alcohol consumption, anything can be dangerous, but the binge drinking can lead to things like blackouts, um, unsafe practices, whether it's, um, you know, driving um, or other uh, unsafe um, behaviors that can occur. But the other thing that happens, Maureen, is then your guard is down for other things that you wouldn't perhaps otherwise do. Maybe you're going to eat recklessly, or maybe you, you know, have um, be involved in um, a sexual or physical um, encounter, which you may not have been wanting to be involved in and with your better judgment. So it it opens up a lot of other potential problems. Now, we know that medical detection dogs are already being used to identify cancer, malaria, and Parkinson's. Uh, What about uh, having those dogs detect coronavirus or COVID-19? It's a fascinating area, and uh, in British Columbia, we've actually used it, and several of the health authorities um, use dogs to identify C. difficile. And just to remind everyone, that's a, a bowel infection where there, it can spread and become almost epidemic-like within a hospital. Um, so we have had some success with this in, in BC. Now, what they're saying, and, and you have to remember that people are looking for new strategies to identify cases earlier and earlier on. So the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine is um, looking into, and they're just in the early stages of training dogs to be able to sniff out patients that would have COVID-19 and what they're doing is they're giving them masks of patients who have COVID-19 and are confirmed cases and, and trying to see if the dogs recognize a specific odor there then then they that they then would go and recognize in patients and then we would decide do we need to test them or isolate them. Again, very, very early stages but you know at that time Maureen speaks to how everybody is trying to find creative solutions um, to this massive problem that's obviously taken over the world and, and if, it, if this does work I can imagine them training many dogs to do this. I'd like to train my dog uh, to do that. <laughs> I think I mean, my, my, mine is skilled at the barking at leaves, so uh, so I, he's got a ways to go. Mine is brilliant and quite an athlete. But anyway, um, the the thing is, we're we're all wanting to open up safely. We we need to get back to you know we need to restart the economy. People need to get 
start working again, get back to some sort of normalcy. Uh, and so there was something else that I had heard about uh, or read about, and that was uh, we have a term in medicine called flatus. So when you pass flatus or expel flatus, it, it's a four-letter word. That's not my favorite word. Um, but when people pass gas, all right, I'll use the three-letter word there, um, coronavirus could be spreading across the globe through people who are passing gas. This is a pretty foul discovery, nonetheless, a discovery. Yeah, and again, Maureen, I think it's still early stages of knowing how significant this is and whether it truly does lead to infections or is it that we're just finding parts of the virus and the gas that people are passing out and and, um, and can, they, can someone else get infected from that gas? I think it's too early to say, but the good news is that they're saying that um, covering um, that part of the body by wearing pants probably will protect from um, that kind of transmission. So I would imagine that not too many people are um, in public places without pants on, um, so but listen. this doesn't become a major, major area of transmission, unless you're going to tell me something more interesting. How many people are attending Zoom meetings with a, just a top on? Or <laughs> but it's not transmitted over Zoom, so I think we should probably still be okay. Excellent. Um, but, you know, we're finding out through, and we're having to do so much research, and we're finding little bits of information. We're having small sample sizes just to find out anything about this virus that, that has impacted so many lives and, uh, and has been lethal and has wreaked havoc on our healthcare systems in certain areas as well. But we're also finding that uh, there was a recent study out of Stanford, I believe it was, that um, that it's not any because there are so many more cases than than confirmed cases. Um, we're finding that it's not as lethal, perhaps, or the mortality rate isn't as high. Absolutely, and um, we fluctuated, and you and I have spoken um, several times over the last few months on this. I mean, the mortality rates range anywhere from 1.7 to as high as 7% in places like Italy. And you have to remember the mortality rate is also affected by um, the population that's at risk. So in Italy, for example, it was a much older population, a lot that had core morbidities or other health conditions, um, and, and the lowest is 1.7%. So, But what we're finding, what we're likely to find once we start doing antibody testing is that 70 80% of the population will likely be getting COVID either with mild symptoms or almost no symptoms. But until we start doing those antibody tests, we won't have a sense of that. So it is reassuring that not a large percentage of the population gets really sick. But unfortunately, the ones that get sick um, are getting very sick and they're ending up in the ICU for really long lengths of time. And, and that's the problem. If they were in the ICU and they had a shorter stay or they were able to come off, it's very difficult to a small percentage are able to actually come off of ventilation once they're put on. Um, um, Absolutely. And, and I think that's what's taking up our resources. Um, it's, it's not so much um, the ability to identify them and having them go on, but how long it takes for their body to fight um, a response because our, our treatments really are uh, ventilation and giving them support. But there isn't um, sort of proven treatments with large randomized clinical trials right now that says this medication is absolutely going to work. Right, exactly. And then we saw the um, act, the Broadway actor uh, Nick Cordero, who had his leg amputated as a result of uh, blood clots in his leg um, yesterday. And so we're we're hearing some of those tragic, tragic stories. And um, anyway, the, the more so we learn. One, 
Yeah, and one of the highlights, though, it's been very interesting, in case our listeners haven't known this, is, is that one, one strategy that has been very effective is proning. Um, so this is P-R-O-N-I-N-G, and this is going to sound horribly simple, but normally when somebody's in the ICU, they're lying down on their back. Mm-hmm. So what they've discovered is rolling them over to their tummies, as you lying on their stomach, actually increases the oxygen into their lungs. So that's actually quite an effective strategy right now, which um, which was most ICU patients with COVID-19 spend up to 16 hours a day on their tummies now rather than on their back. So that is, you know, evidence-based and sounds like it is helping. Yeah, that's great because that is an unusual way to ventilate people. But um, yeah, so anything that can help. And, and you have been so helpful, Dr. Parhar. Thank you so much um, for educating everybody, myself included, and the listeners with all of your great information. And uh, hopefully you'll come back next week. (laughs) Great. Take care, Maureen, and stay safe. Thanks. Same to you. All right. When I come back, we're talking domestic violence and sleep issues. This is Maureen McGrath and the Sunday Night Health Show. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.